If you are able, I invite you to rise wherever you stand as we read our scripture. Our verses today come from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 17. I urge you, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith. But the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Some people have deviated from these and turned to meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason I received mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Shelby, thank you so much for reading our lesson uh, today. And Thomas, we're grateful for your leadership as well in our music. And I want to say to each of you, uh, as Shelby has already done, a special holiday welcome on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and also this Snow Watch uh, weekend that we're a part of. Uh, our kids were out of school already on Monday, but it appears as though they'll be out again, and uh, we welcome all of you. And I can't tell you what a distinct privilege it is and an honor uh, for us to be with you and to worship with you in your homes or wherever you are uh, this morning. We welcome you. Uh, we're beginning a new series uh, today while the new year is just two weeks old. We're beginning a new series of messages today called Love Uncontaminated. And so for the next seven weeks, this will finally end in seven weeks around Ash Wednesday that will be begin our Lenten journey. But for the next seven Sundays, we're going to take an in-depth look at one of the pastoral epistles in the New Testament. The passage that Shelby has just read for us is the opening section or opening fragment of a letter from the Apostle Paul to his young protege in the faith whose name was Timothy. Now, it's interesting to me, sidebar, that his name Timothy literally means one who honors God. Timothy was Paul's chief 
lieutenant, if you will, converted as a teenager under Paul's ministry, under Paul's preaching in the little town called Lystra. Lystra was a Roman colony in Asia Minor, which today is modern Turkey, and Timothy was Paul's go-to guy on the mission field, all over the mission field, in towns like Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Ephesus. In fact, it was while Timothy was serving in Ephesus that he received this letter from his mentor. Now, I want to say before we go on any further that what distinguishes the pastoral letters from other letters in the New Testament is that these pastoral letters were not written to entire church communities as such, but indeed these letters were written to individuals who were leading church communities. And there are three such letters in the New Testament, first and second Timothy and Titus. And we know that they're pastoral, they're considered pastoral in that they contain spiritual guidance and direction for missionaries who are seeking to advance the witness of the gospel to a new generation. These two letters to Timothy were addressed to Timothy while he was in the city of Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus, like all churches, including ours, had its issues. Churches, like people, have challenges and concerns that threaten the fabric and unity of the body and the future of the witness. After all, churches are composed of people like you, people like me, who are a messy mix of sinner and saint. But I think to help us get a clearer view of Timothy's context of Timothy's situation in Ephesus, I want to read a portion of this text that Shelby just read for us from a modern, a more modern paraphrase. This, this is selected verses from 1 Timothy 1 from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, which is called The Message. Listen to these words. On my way to the province of Macedonia, Timothy, I advised you to stay in Ephesus. Well, I haven't changed my mind. Stay right there on top of things so that the teaching stays on track. Apparently, some have been introducing fantasy stories and fanciful family trees that digress into silliness instead of pulling the people back into the center, deepening faith and obedience. The point of what we're urging is simply this, Timothy, love. Love uncontaminated, there's our theme. Love uncontaminated by self-interest and counterfeit faith, a life that is open to God. Those who fail to keep this point soon wander off into cul-de-sacs of gossip. They set themselves up as experts on religious issues when they haven't the foggiest idea of what they're holding forth with such imposing eloquence. It is true that moral guidance and counsel need to be given but the way you say it and to whom you say it are as important as what you say. I'm so grateful to Christ for making me adequate to do this work, says Paul. He really went out on a limb, you know, entrusting me with this ministry. The only credentials I brought to it were violence, witch hunts, and arrogance. But I was treated mercifully because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know who I was doing it against. Grace mixed with faith and love poured over me and into me, 
and all because of Jesus. Here's a word you can take heart in and depend on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public sinner number one, of someone who could have never made it apart from sheer mercy. And now he shows me off evidence of his endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. It's beautiful, isn't it? The first issue that Paul mentions in this text is the need for perseverance. It seems implicit in the text that Timothy may have been reluctant to accept this post in Ephesus to begin with. And now it seems that he's considering his options. In other words, Timothy is reading the want ads. Sometimes when the going gets tough, the tough get lost. And so Paul is pleading with Timothy for persistence. Listen to chapter one, verse three again. On my way to Macedonia, I advise you, Timothy, to stay in Ephesus, and I haven't changed my mind. Stay right where you are on top of things so that the teaching stays on track. And there's the other issue, the teaching, the curriculum, the core message. And by the way, what is the core message that Paul is getting at? You see this in verse 15 that we just read. In fact, verse 15 is stated as an early creedal formula. Here it is. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds his own humble confession, of which I am the worst. Certainly Paul had his PhD in sin before Damascus. And that's why while he often points out our sin, he never gets too judgy because he's ever mindful of what his life was like B.C., before Christ. Stay put, persevere, so that the message stays on track. Sometimes the pressures of leadership are so stressful that we start to look for greener pastures. In fact, culturally right now, we're living in a phase that social scientists are calling the great resignation. Some call it the big quit. There are many industries and work areas where we're having trouble finding people to work together. One of the questions I think that the pandemic has raised in our culture is about vocational meaning and purpose. And the questions that we're asking, these are necessary and legitimate questions, are these. Is what I'm doing having any impact? Is what I'm doing making any difference? In fact, does it even matter? Well, sometimes what we do matters so much that we just get tired. We just grow weary. There are some positions, there are some responsibilities in leadership that you can never seem to do enough. I don't know about you, but I've felt great sympathy for doctors in particular and nurses, medical technicians, first responders, mental health care professionals, I've felt deep sympathy for them because of the unceasing need and demand that they're facing. 
There are predictions, and you've read them, that there may be perhaps as many as 30% of our nurses who will be finding other careers due to burnout. There are similar forecasts regarding pastors, teachers, and counselors. And sometimes the reality is we just need a breather. Somebody needs a time out. Somebody needs a Sabbath or maybe even a change of scenery. But more often than not, we need to stay put. More often than not, when the heat rises, we need to stick with it. In another letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians, chapter 6, verse 9, he said this, let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if, if we don't give up. Stay put, says Paul, so that the message stays on track. By the way, there is evidence in Ephesus that the teaching is getting out of kilter, off track. Indeed, there were those there who had lost their center. In fact, a verse or two after what shall be read for us, Paul calls names, Hymenaeus and Alexander, two leaders in the church in Ephesus who kind of got off track. The exact nature of the deviation is not altogether clear. We'll go there in the coming weeks, but it's not altogether clear. But the result of getting off track is clear. When the church gets off track in our teaching, we end up majoring on minors. We become distracted from the main thing. We get into secondary matters as the main thing, and we begin speculating about secondary issues and irrelevancies. It's interesting that later on in this letter to Timothy, Paul gets very specific about this. Chapter 6, verse 4, listen to this. Whoever does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that is in accord with godliness is conceited, understanding nothing, has a morbid craving for controversy and disputes about words, sound familiar? From these come envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among those who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And it is not. Godliness is more often a means of surrender, of resignation, of sacrifice. In this introductory message, I think the purpose of this epistle as a whole is to promote love, which, by the way, is the chief commandment, which, by the way, is the center of our faith, which, by the way, is the core message and teaching the aim of sound teaching, says Paul, is uncontaminated love. Love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In fact, it reminds me of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. To be pure in heart doesn't mean that you never have an unclean thought. But to be pure in heart means that you are single-minded 
this one thing I do, to have a consuming passion for God and for neighbor. It's interesting to me that the prophet John, who wrote Revelation on the Isle of Patmos when he was incarcerated for his faith, exiled for his faith, years after Paul and Timothy were long gone, while John is exiled in Patmos, he does a little appraisal of the churches of Asia Minor, including the church in Ephesus. And in Revelations 2, he writes these words to the church in Ephesus. I see what you've done. I see your hard work. I see your persistence, your perseverance. I know you can't stomach evil and that you weed out apostolic pretenders. I know about that. But this one thing I have against you, you have forgotten your first love. Love has become contaminated. Therefore, repent, my friends, and do the works you did at first, or I may remove your lampstand. I'm thinking of Martin Luther King today and his legacy. I'm remembering the privilege that was mine when I was a seminary student in the early to mid-80s in Atlanta at Candler on the campus of Emory University, I had the privilege of taking a class at Ebenezer Baptist Church in preaching, of all things, from Dr. Joe Roberts, great pastor in that incredible church. I can still remember going through the sanctuary and seeing the organ where his mother was playing on that Sabbath day when the shooter came in and gunned her down while in worship. I'm thinking about the incredible sacrifice that that man made who gave his life, who was assassinated at the age of 39. I was reading the other day about his first church, his ministry at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, which by the way, he was 25 years of age when he was appointed there as the pastor. In one of his early sermons, he preached a sermon called Loving Enemies. And in that message, he told a story about Abraham Lincoln. This is the story. When Lincoln was running for his second term as president, there was a man who was running around the country opposing him, bad-mouthing him, named Edwin Stanton. Stanton said horrific things about the president, unkind things. He even talked about his looks at one point saying, and I quote, do we really want a tall, lanky, ignorant-looking man like this in the Oval Office as the President of the United States of America? Edwin Stanton was absolutely ruthless. He went on and on putting Lincoln down. When Lincoln finally won the second term, won the election, it came time for him to choose his cabinet. And when it came time to choose the Secretary of War, he looked across the nation, and who do you suppose he decided to ask? Edwin Stanton. Well, as you can imagine, his advisors were shocked. Mr. Lincoln, they said, are you a complete fool? Do you not know that this man, do you not know what he's been saying about you? Do you not know that he's tried to defeat you at every turn? Have you not read the derogatory statements that he has made about you consistently? To which the president said, yes, I know that. I've read about it. 
I've heard him say those things myself. But after looking across this whole country, I find that he is the best man for the job. And sure enough, Stanton became the Secretary of War. And as you know, a short time later, President Lincoln was assassinated. Who do you suppose made the greatest, stated the greatest words ever spoken about any president? Who do you suppose at the time of his death uttered the greatest words that are memorialized in Washington, D.C.? It was Edwin Stanton. When Lincoln came near the end of his life, as he was passing, Stanton stood by his bed and said, now he belongs to the ages. Something happened to Edwin Stanton because of the president's love. If Mr. Lincoln had hated Stanton like Stanton hated him, he would have never redeemed him. But because of the power of love, Lincoln was able to transform this man from an enemy into a friend. Because the center for the president was not his own welfare, it was the good of the nation. And he was willing to die for it, as was Dr. King, as was the Lord he proclaimed. There's a name for this kind of thing. It's called uncontaminated love. This is what sound doctrine and good teaching will do. It results in a love uncontaminated, and that love doesn't seek to put others in their place. It seeks to make a place for others. It centers itself in the saying that is sure. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me and like you for the redemption and reconciliation of the world. And so we stick to it that the teaching may stay on track and the results will be redemptive for Christ's sake. Amen.